everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. Dan just got back from a, a youth camp with uh, teens. He, uh, if you don't know, we support him in Young Life. And uh, one of the things that they focus on is reaching out to kids that would never take the time to come near a church. Uh, beyond that, I'm going to let him talk a little bit more. So we just came back from a week of camp up in, uh, uh, up in uh, North Carolina. Got back. Our seven-hour bus ride took 10 hours yesterday. So, And half of it was in a bus with no air conditioning with 20 smelly teenagers. So um, suffering for Christ is real, even in America. But uh, what I will say is that we were able to bring, um, we brought about 10 folks uh, from uh, Nassau County here uh, to Young Life Camp. And uh, so here's the thing I realized over the week. Um, the Holy Spirit was totally present in this room full of the most diverse teenagers you're ever going to see. And the reason I knew that, and it kind of hit me, is some kids were really enthralled and engaged and happy to hear it. And other kids were, were getting angry. And I think we have this misnomer that, oh, when the Holy Spirit moves, everyone's happy. No. So it was totally an awesome experience. Um, two things I want to share. Um, of, of the kids that we brought, one of them was our friend Dalton, who um, has Down syndrome. So we meet here a couple Tuesdays a month in the school year. And Dalton's been coming and he has, he comes from a Christian home. He's 20 years old. Um, but he, so at, one night at camp, we talked about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for all of our sins. And he just turns around to me at the end. He was like, Dan, I want to accept the sacrifice. And it actually, it took me, like, I'm so used to doing youth ministry that I, and kids like arguing with me that I had no idea how to respond. And we talked a little bit about it. And what just, it was so great to see the Holy Spirit move in his life, and I'm not even sure that that was the first time that he's, because he knows a lot about God, but his parents weren't there. He's 20 years old. He made that decision that night. Like, I want to accept the sacrifice. Um, and we had another kid named Caden who we, this part's going to get me. Uh, a year and a half ago, we lost a kid named Cameron. He was one of our church kids, Bible study kids. He died um, suddenly from a heart defect at 18. It was devastating for our group, and uh, I got brought to the school um, to be like, hey, can you just be around? And I, I met Caden through that, and because uh, he was friends with Cameron as well, and he started coming to Young Life, and he came to camp. Um, he's been with us ever since, and death of a friend, I've experienced it, especially at a young age. You can run away from God. You can run to God, um, and I totally understand why both happens. I've done both. So Caden decided to come to camp, kid has a kind of a rough life, not horrible, but just very inconsistent. And he said, after a week with us and looking at scriptures and praying, and he just said yesterday, he's like, I'm tired of pretending that I'm into this and I, and I want to do this. So, and it's a process. Like now we get to come home and walk that out. And that's the fun part. So I just wanted to thank you guys for doing that. Um, it was a great week that we got to go to. And uh, you guys are part of it. I try and keep 
I think about one a once a quarter now, I try and keep you apprised of, of what your tithe and offerings actually go to. There's a lot of things we get to be a part of, but when you give to this church, things like that are what you're a part of, and it's always wonderful when we get to hear it. Because we support Dan, because this is one of Dan's home churches that launches him as a missionary out into Nassau County to reach kids that have nothing to do with church, have never heard the name of Christ, or would never hear the name of Christ. Otherwise, you get to be an extension of that. And when you get to heaven, I have no doubts in my mind that there will be many things God will show us where he'll say, when you gave to this, or when you prayed for this, you never saw the results of it, but let me show you how far-reaching everything that you trusted me with has done. And I believe there will be myriads of souls that we will get to see that we have been a part of restoring, of bringing to the saving knowledge of Christ, of healing that we would have never thought possible until God peels back the veil and says, you, because you were faithful to me, God, and where I sent you and what I asked you to give, this is what I was able to do. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 15. Starting in verse 1. I want to make a statement very quickly, and then I will clarify that statement as we get into the rest of this sermon. As you turn your Bibles, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. If you do not know, or if you have forgotten, or if you are new here, then there's no way you would know. But God has called this church to a very, very specific type of ministry. It is not a better ministry. It is not a worse ministry. It is not a more important ministry. It is not a less important ministry. You can look around everywhere in Nassau County, and there are numerous churches. Right now, if you were to go down to 17 and make a left, you would find two churches within less than a block of each other, right around the corner from us. That's less than a mile away. Is there an issue with that? Absolutely not. Because when God makes a body, he has everything do different parts. We've heard it before, I'm not the hand, so I don't belong. Well, I hope that nobody ever says that in their ear, because then we won't hear God anymore. Or because I'm not the foot, then I don't belong. Well, I hope nobody ever says that, because then we wouldn't be able to walk as a body anymore. I don't think seeing a bunch of churches is indicative of a fragmented person of Christ. I think it's indicative that God has different parts of his body, and each part of that body does different things. And when the body works out of what it was designed to do, when certain parts of the church decide, well, we don't want to be this, we want to look like someone else, well, we wish we looked like that larger church, or we wish we were like that smaller church, or we wish we had these ministries or that ministries, and there's nothing wrong with expanding the church, there's nothing wrong with growing the church. But when the focus of a church starts becoming, how do we look more like the church around the corner? Or maybe there's a mega church across the country that has sudden success. How do we look like them? How do we emulate them? We miss out on what God has asked us to be in his body. And we are a hospital church. That's what we are. That is all we are. Everything we do in this church is designed around that specific goal, that specific aspect of the person of Christ. We are nothing more, we are nothing less than a hospital church. And I'll explain that in a little bit, but allow me to read to you the book of Luke, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you? 
having a hundred sheep. If he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends, neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more. Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who didn't need to repent. If you grew up in church, you've heard that a lot. You probably had a teacher use a flannel graph. I think most of us are old enough in here that that would have been the method we learned, where the teacher brings out a nice little flannel-looking sheep, and she shoves it up on the wall, and then she has a nice little flannel-looking shepherd, and he sho- she shoves that up on the wall, and then teaches you about how Jesus will leave the 99 sheep back at the pen to go and find the one missing sheep. Now, before we get into what's going on here, I really like how it sets up the story. Jesus was at a party having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. I enjoy that he separates tax collectors. Apparently, they're a different type of sinner than the regular sinner. That makes me feel a little bit good every year that April 15th comes around or whatever day we're supposed to pay taxes. I don't handle that, obviously. Otherwise, I'd be in jail. Whatever day you pay taxes, I'm glad Jesus like they're a different type of sinner. Still a sinner, but a different type. Tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees get angry. And say, look at this rabbi. Doesn't he invite all these sinners? I can't believe he would sit down. I can't believe he would be at their houses. I can't believe he would hang out with these awful, awful people. I enjoy that Luke. If you don't know anything about Luke, Luke is a doctor. Before he ever became a scribe, writing down everything that happened in the life of Christ, everything that happened with all the disciples and all the miracles Jesus wrote, Luke was a doctor. Luke wrote the book of Luke well After Jesus had already died, risen from the dead, gone to heaven. And Luke started seeing all these Christians running around. Luke didn't actually interact with Jesus. But because he was a doctor, he said, I've got to have empirical evidence that this random man I hear about from Galilee, this random Nazarene is actually who he says he was. So Luke leaves his practice as a doctor. I'm sure that in order to fund what his little hobby was all of a sudden, he decided he would still have to practice medicine as he went and saw people. But he would run from person to person saying, Tell me what you know about Christ. Have you ever had an interaction with Jesus? Were you there? Are you one of the former tax collectors who used to steal, but now you're a just tax collector and you only collect what you're supposed to? Are you the prostitute that he spoke to that he covered that one time caught in adultery? He would run around from person to person, finding John, finding Mark, and he'd say, tell me about your interactions. So Luke, when he wrote down things, he was very, very meticulous. Have you ever gone to a good doctor? I don't know if there's any left nowadays. I'm very careful about that when I go to a doctor. Nowadays, it seems like all they want to do is buy something else for themselves. And so they say, well, if you just go ahead and have your insurance. Well, how much does it cost me? I'm not really sure how much it costs you. I just know that if you go to your insurance, I get paid and they tell you what you pay. Nowadays, it seems like they're more interested in churning. That doesn't mean don't go to your doctor. Please, if something's wrong, go to your doctor. I don't need a lawsuit saying Pastor J.J. Bradley currently in court over one of his congregants passing away because he said don't go to your doctor. Go to your doctor, take the medicines they ask you to take. I'm not saying do it blindly, but Luke, this good doctor, meticulous in everything he writes, doesn't just casually write down when he's talking about Christ, picks every specific word because as he picks those words, as he places them in order, he understands I'm not always going to be around to explain what I meant when I wrote it. And if I don't write it down accurately in favor of what had happened, 
at the time and also use the proper words to describe how it happened, people will get lost and confused. Isn't it interesting that the first thing he says, tax collectors and sinners. Everybody there was a sinner. Pharisees included. They just didn't know they were sinners because they thought, well, I go to church, so I'm not a sinner. I don't need this rabbi. These people need this rabbi. But I don't want the people that need this rabbi to hang out with this rabbi because that makes this rabbi, Jesus, less holy. I cannot believe. Luke said, tax collectors and sinners. Not me. Yes, Pharisee, you. I read the Bible every day. Still a sinner. I do everything God asks me to do. Still a sinner. I do go to church. I tithe. I give more than my tithe. I make sure to raise my hands. I say amen when I think the pastor is said something good even if I don't like the pastor I'm a good Christian still a sinner see we like to read the story of Jesus leaving the 99 going in search of the one we like to read the parable of Jesus leaving the nine coins that he has and scouring the entire house for the one missing coin. We like to hear the story of the prodigal son walking away from his father, denying him, saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, which, by the way, that's what he said. When he comes to Dad and says, Dad, give me my inheritance now. Has anybody ever gotten their inheritance while someone's still alive? No, you have to die. No death, no money. And the son says, well, I'm young now. Let me have the money while I can enjoy it. And so he goes to Dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now so that I can live like you're dead. That's literally what he said. We like to think of those stories. Look at those lost poor souls. People who don't know Jesus, people who know nothing about. Look at those terrible, terrible children in Nassau County schools. Look at all those poor children that Dan ministers to. Isn't he so wonderful? Going to all those sinners. All the rest of the sinners sit in church, but we're not those sinners. Preacher, I thought I was saved. You are saved. Preacher, I thought I'm no longer a sinner. Your identity is no longer as a sinner. But that doesn't change the fact that probably on your way here to church today or sometime throughout the week, you probably did something that you ought to go to God or have gone to God and said, God, forgive me for I have sinned. Your identity might be in Christ now. You might no longer identify with the sin you used to commit. It might now be child of God. But it doesn't change the fact that the reality is we live in flesh and we have a tendency, myself included, to not only give in to sin from time to time, but to headlong jump into it knowing it's sin. Looking at God saying, God, the temptation is too great, the frustration too intense, I cannot handle the emotions that are rising up in me, I don't want to deal with this your way, I want to deal with it my way. And if you are married, or you have parents, or you have children, I guarantee you in the last week or at least month, you have acted like that with God. I don't think anybody in here is the product of a virgin birth, so I think that's everybody. We look at Jesus going after the 90, after the one, leaving the 99. Oh, I'm so glad I'm one of the 99 in that tent. You know how many times we've been the one? Not since I've been saved and redeemed. Not since I've been blood-bought and born again. Not since I got the Holy Ghost. Not since I've been sanctified. Do you know how many times we've been the one that Christ had to go after? Do you know how many times that you will probably, again, be the one that Christ has to go after? Do you know how many more times I'm going to be the one that Jesus has to look at the rest of his sheep and say, excuse me for a minute, I've got to go and get my boneheaded son again. 
Now, whenever my dad called me a boneheaded son, he usually did it with a smile. So I assume that God has a little bit of humor about him. When he sees me do something stupid or foolish or sinful, he just shakes his head and says, why? As he laughs on his way to get me out of trouble again. I don't know if any of you spend any time on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or YouTube or whatever it is. But one of my favorite little shorts, reels, TikToks, whatever you want to call it that I've ever seen, it's this phrase at the top. And it says, me right after God has gotten me out of trouble again. And it's the sheep that's face down in a little crevice, a little crevasse. And he's just stuck in there, face down. And the shepherd comes up behind him and grabs his back legs and he yanks the sheep out. And the sheep is so excited, it starts bouncing and bounding everywhere. Have you ever seen sheep? They are hilarious to watch. First of all, they're very, very buoyant somehow. I don't know how they defy gravity. They just take their four little feet and spring off the ground. I assume goats are like sheep. I went over to the Newells one time. I was dropping off some food or I was getting Judah and Leo. I don't know. I went inside for half a second. I come back outside. Now, I know I'm not tall. So I understand sometimes my concept of what is high and what is not might be a little bit off. But the bed of my truck is about up to here. So that's at least four feet. And in the bed of my truck, I had my surfboard. And I come outside, staring at a goat, staring down at me. And I'm looking, how did you get up there? You ever seen a goat jump? They just walk over and they just, and somehow they defy gravity and float up and he landed on, there were no marks on my surfboard, there were no indents on my surfboard. All I could assume was somehow goats and sheep have a supernatural power that allows them to alight in the air and then gently like a feather float back down on whatever, let's go back to my little short that I was talking about. This sheep starts, gets pulled out of that little crevice that it couldn't get out of. It was kicking its little legs everywhere. They were flailing up in here. The, the shepherd was not very gentle. Grabs onto those joints. Rips the sheep out. The sheep is so excited and starts bounding. And about two bounds forward, jumps right back face down into the same crevice. Am I describing anybody? We're a hospital church. Most of the time, church is treated like a hospice. You get saved. Jesus comes into your life. What a wonderful thing. That is not to diminish that. In fact, Jesus comes alongside you and walks alongside you. And even after you've been saved, he begins to work on you and enjoy your company and let you go on your way and say, listen, I want you to come this way with me. We'll worry about what we're fixing along the way. Don't worry about that right now. Let's just enjoy the fact that we get to be close to each other. And as we go, he says, I'd like to go ahead and work on this in you. You've been with you for a long time. I want to go ahead and heal this thing. I want to take this burden off of you. You've held on to it too long. And on and on. But most of the time, even while doing that, while letting Christ work on us, while letting Christ walk alongside us, while letting Christ celebrate us, which he does about you, by the way. He doesn't look at you in scorn or disappointment. He celebrates your very existence and your willingness to even be close to him. But many of us, after we have gotten saved, we just walk along into eternity. We're like someone who has lived a good life and we lay in our bed saying, at least I'm going to heaven until we slowly fade away. 
We live our lives as Christians many times like hospice. God, thank you for saving me. Nothing wrong with anyone. God, thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for healing me of that trauma that I had as a child. Thank you for giving me something that I can cling to by faith, knowing that you're still faithful in my darkest time. Nothing wrong with that. But while we're all saying that, many times we settle in to the bed of salvation and wait there until we die. The church was never meant to be a hospice where people get saved and then come and die. The church was meant to be a hospital where in our injury, in our brokenness, we come into the church to find healing. If we are healed, then we come into the church so that we can be trained to be medical practitioners and then go out and find other people who are broken in their place at that moment and administer healing through the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of coming to church is one of two things, to either be equipped or to find spiritual medicine. Nothing more, nothing less, and that is all this church is. It does not matter if this church grows or if it shrinks. I'd like it to grow. I love seeing all of you. I'd like some extra faces. Look at all the chairs we have. I want more people in there. You want to know why I want more people in there? Because that's more operations. That's more surgery. That's more practicing of medicine. That's more people who are needing to see the glory of the Father come into their life. Touch the trauma in the brokenness that they have never even known was there, but has been affecting them for the entirety of their lives. That's more people coming and saying, I've got to know how to walk with Christ so that I can be an administer of healing to people in my life. I've got to come here so that I can be either healed or be someone who is part of the healing. That is the point of this church, and God help us if we ever walk away from this. The vision of this church is described in a very simple phrase that God gave me a long time ago. I've got to change it. It's a little clunky at the end, but it needs to hold the same thing together. Broken by life. How many of us have lived you know how long you got to be around in this world to be broken by it? About six seconds. In fact, some people don't even have to live in this world that long. They get, get the brokenness after in their mother's womb. It takes no effort to be broken in this world. It takes no effort to find pain in this world. It takes no amount of strain to be injured by this world. And unfortunately, many times when people come to a church, they walk into a group of people that look like they're perfectly fine, that everybody is perfectly healed, everybody's got it all together, and as a result, as they walk in with their limp, or as they walk in with their head sunken in, or as they walk with their heart falling apart, or as they walk in with ribs broken, or a limp in their leg, all they look at, well, I don't belong here because these people are healed and everyone's walking upright. The reality is every single person in here probably still has a limp from something. You have not been healed yet. You might be as healed as God is willing to heal you so far, but you have not finished being healed yet. You might be in a recovery period where God has said, I have healed you as much as I am willing to heal you. At this moment, not that I'm ignoring everything else, not that I'm setting it off to the side, but you need a period of rest. Who has ever had surgery? It is the worst thing in the world. I'm so glad I'm unconscious for it. But if you've ever had more than one thing broken at once, one of the things that they will do is do two separate surgeries. Unless they happen to be in the same place. If you've got two broken things that are right next to each other, okay, we'll do one surgery. These things are related. We'll go ahead and fix both of those things. But if you've got a broken shoulder and a broken knee or if you have a need for heart surgery and need a hip replacement they're only going to do one of those at a time 
Because if they do both of that at a time, it will traumatize your body so deeply that the recovery will not only take twice as long, it will take exponentially longer. Because when the body begins to heal, it tries to focus on everything at once. And if they put the pain and the need for healing everywhere in the body at the same time, if they do the hip and the heart at the exact same time, the body will divide its resources to heal in such an inefficient way that it will be as though you never healed. And so what they do is they centralize the focus of what medicine must do and then what the body must do. And so they say, we will only operate on this area first. Once it has healed, once it has come to a point of health, then we're going to go back in after you've had time to recover, after you've had time to, do you understand that's what God does with us? Listen, you're so messed up that if God went in to go ahead and do surgery on everything in your life and everything in my life that's so ruined, so traumatized, so broken, if he did it all at once right now, it would kill us. We can't handle it. Anybody who has ever had God come into their life and begin to touch the trauma that has ripped through their soul since for as long as they can remember. Anybody who has ever had God come in and release them of bitterness that they have held on for years. Anybody who has ever had God come in and release them from the shame that they have held since they've been a little boy or a little girl for whatever reason, legitimate or illegitimate. Anybody who has had God ever come in and forgive them of something that they have held on so deeply that they felt they could not be forgiven of it knows of the physical strain it puts on your body. We are not designed in our current forms to handle the full healing of God. And so he does a little bit here, and he does a little bit there. If he sees the brokenness that life has inflicted upon us, and make no mistake about it, I am still just as messed up as I've ever been. The difference is I've got a lot less limps than I used to have. But in our brokenness, he says one thing at a time, and then I'm going to give you rest. Once you've enjoyed that rest and the peace, I'm not going to take it away. Instead, I'm going to build on that. I'm going to come into something else that is robbing you of that rest or that peace or that hope or whatever it is or that broken family or whatever it is in your life after you've had some time to rest and enjoy everything that I've just healed in you. I'm going to build on that healing by coming in to work on something else that will then build on that healing. Not so that I can take away the joy and the peace, but so that I can enhance it. Broken by life, healed by his grace. You want to know the only reason that a doctor operates on you? Because they choose to. Let me say that again. You want to know the only reason a doctor operates on you? Because they choose to. No, they have an obligation to do that. No, they don't. They have an obligation to do no harm. Do no harm does not mean do good. Do no harm just means avoid doing something that is innately harmful to the person on the table in front of me. At any given moment, a doctor can look at a person or a patient and say, I'm not going to operate. Doctor, your job is do no harm. No, yeah, that's right, but that does not mean I have to begin the thing of good in this person. The only reason I have to cut them open and work on that organ, the only reason that I have to cut them open and work on that joint, the only reason I need to administer this shot or prescribe this medicine or send them to a psychiatrist so that they can work through the brokenness of their brain and an expertise that I don't have. The only reason I have to do that is because I choose to. Well, if the doctor doesn't do that, his family doesn't need it. Her family doesn't need it. Doesn't mean they have to be a doctor to do it. 
Well, if a doctor doesn't do that, they're going to get a bad review. So what? They didn't work on you. They skipped out on the hard part. Leave a bad Yelp review. Leave them one star. At least they didn't have to deal with the hard part. You. Me. The only reason God has ever healed me had nothing to do with you were a good person. Had nothing to do you asked for. You did not convince God. You did not manipulate God. You did not buy God off by putting enough money in the plate. You did not earn God healing you. The only reason God has ever healed you of any part in your person, in your spirit, in your mind, in your body, is because he said, I want to. You understand that grace can only be done when it's done free of obligation. Grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be demanded. Grace cannot be manipulated. Grace cannot be required. It cannot be done out of obligation because by definition, grace can only be freely given. That's why I have such a hard time when it comes to giving as far as tithe and offering. When people say, well, I have to give so that I get blessed by God. No, you don't. You should give so that God does not withhold blessing. But that's why he says give with a cheerful Heart. That's why you won't ever hear me preach a sermon where I try and guilt you or manipulate you into tithing. Whenever I preach on tithing, I give you the premise of how God works. Tithing is a seed. If you never plant seed, nothing ever grows. It's not God's fault that nothing grows in your life when you don't plant seed. And it has nothing to do with you getting more money. It has everything to do with that when you plant seed, God makes things grow like peace in your life. God makes things grow like the light bills being paid when you don't have enough money to pay it. God makes things grow like all of a sudden you don't lose your job when everybody else is losing your job. God makes it that all of a sudden you keep selling houses in a real estate market that is declining and crashing. God makes it that all of a sudden you start getting a job that you didn't even know you needed. God makes it that all of a sudden you start going home and your house is a place of peace and rest instead of a place of chaos. But he can't make anything grow when nothing's been planted. That's not guilt, that's principle. I get so mad when I hear preachers or when I hear politicians say, you have to give. No, I do not. I should give. I have to give. That's why I get so frustrated when people say, listen, this is not anything against Social Security. Please understand that this, what I'm about to say is not meant to be a political thing. It is meant to be a heart thing. But I get frustrated when people say we need to tax people more so that we can help more people. I don't have a problem with taxes. No taxes, no firefighters. No firefighters, houses burned down. No taxes, no police. No police, people's houses get broken into with no repercussions. Or idiot teenagers drive over the speed limit and crash. No taxes, no roads. No taxes. People who can't afford medicine can't get medicine. I, there is a good benefit to taxes. I get that. But my problem is when people say that we ought to be compelled or forced to give more taxes under penalty so that more people can be helped. Did you know that the people, if you were to look at the IRS, and I wish I could find the statistics, the people that pay the least taxes, they don't give twice as much to charitable organizations like churches. 
or missions or medicine or medical fields or building hospitals or building wells or helping out food pantries. The people that pay the least taxes give exponentially more to charitable organizations to help the community around them than people that pay high taxes. What's the principle? When you force giving, what you do is you give a mentality that relieves people of thinking, I need to be involved in the growth around me. When you let people have freedom of how they give, when you let it be God who touches their heart and says, I know you don't have enough money to make ends meet right now, but I want you to go ahead and make sure you tithe. I know you don't have enough money to get to work if you were to even try and put gas in your car with what you have right now. And I know you've already tithed, but I want you to give everything that you've got left, even though it's just $20 to whatever. When you give people the freedom to operate under the Holy Spirit to come into their life and say, here's how I want you to give, it blows the roof off the generosity in people's lives. Giving grows because people want to do it. Grace is not something God is forced to do. Grace is not something God is compelled to do. God does not receive anything in return when he gives grace. There is no penalty on God when he withholds grace. God does not have a consequence to himself if he decides, I'm not going to give grace. Grace is ultimately a net loss to God. Because in order for God to give grace, he must look at his son dying on the cross. He must look at the brief moment in history where he says, I don't even know this person Jesus anymore. He must look at that moment etched in eternity as his son cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is required to come face to face again with the moment in eternity where he turned away from his son so that he can administer grace to you. Every time God gives you a peaceful rest at night, he's got to look back at his son and be reminded of the moment that he turned away. Every time that God forgives you of something, he has to look back at his son and be reminded of the moment where he had to turn away from Jesus. Every time that God brings your husband or your wife back to a point of reconciliation when things have been so bad. Every time God gives you a blessing. Every time God protects you when you don't even know. He is forced to go back to the cross. Look at the moment of eternity where all sin was placed on his son and Pay the price again and again. Jesus may have paid it one time for all, but every time you have to cash into it, God is reminded of the check he wrote. And he doesn't do it with a grudge. He doesn't do it with bitterness. That's why he says give with a grateful heart, because every time he gives you grace, and he sees the sorrow of sin as it broke his son on the cross, the greatest joy he can muster with a celebration throughout all the heavens he says I get to give grace again he doesn't look at you anytime something happens and says I have to give grace again he says I get to give grace again God, I messed up the exact same time. I'm like a sheep who just jumped into that ravine. And as soon as you got me out, less than 10 feet later, I jumped into the same thing. And God says, I get to give grace again. Now listen, Paul said, just because God gets glory from giving you grace over and over, that does not mean keep sinning. All right? That's not an excuse to go ahead and keep sinning. But if you do, I like how John puts it. My dear children, 
I write this to you so that you don't sin. But if you do, I really wish he would have said, but when you do. (laughs) If you do implies that there is the ability by the grace and the glory of God to live a life without consciously sinning. And I believe that, but man, is it difficult to be that humble. Because that means every time I get ready to do something, I go, God, is this okay? Or every time I haven't said, God, is this okay? And I get ready to go do something. That means God will walk in and say, I I didn't clear that. I said, yeah, but God, I like it. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't matter if there's nothing innately wrong with it. I didn't clear that. I'm going to do it anyways. Back in the ravine. (laughs) Don't sin. But if. He has a limitless account of grace. That he is just waiting to be tested on how far I can drain it. He'd rather drain it on healing me. But if he's got to drain that account healing me and forgiving me, he'll happily do it. Broken by life. Healed by his grace. This is the clunky part. Someone who's more creative. Figure out how to, how to word this better. Figure out a way to write this better without it being a long dissertation. Lift it together. I wish God didn't use people. Because I don't like people. You don't like people. I like you people. But I don't like people. And neither do you, Okay. Don't, don't kid yourself. You don't like people either. You might like these people, but you don't like people. You wonder how I know? Because all it takes is someone introducing themselves with the name of someone who was a jerk to you in high school. And immediately, not only do you not like the person in front of you, but you re-don't like the person in high school that that name is associated with. Hear it all the time. What's his name? I just started dating this wonderful guy. He's so wonderful. That's so great. We're so happy for him. He's a great guy. What's his name? Josh. You got to break up with him. Why? Because Josh, I remember Josh. and I. You want to know why? Listen, did any of you know that my name is Dennis? Let me, let me just blow your brains real fast. My name is Dennis. You know me as JJ, but that's because there's a Dennis before me. Dennis Senior. Wave at everybody, Dad. Dennis Prime. I am, I'm Dennis the Second. I'm Dennis Junior. So Dennis Julian Bradley Junior. Now you know why Christina calls me Julian, because my dad's already Dennis. I'm Julian. And why everybody else calls me JJ. Now, for those of you who like to do things efficiently and easily, when you have a second child or a second human in the world with the same name, you give them the easiest variants of that name if you're not going to call them by the same name. Dennis Prime, new Dennis is born. What do you nickname him? Dennis Julian Bradley Jr. What do you nickname that? DJ. That's the easy one. That's the logical one. You want to know why I'm JJ and not DJ? Because apparently there was a DJ in my mom's high school that she did not like. Cannot afford to have this as a DJ. God forbid that DJ that I had in high school ends up influencing this DJ if he ends up having the same name, JJ. You like people that you know. No, I like people that I don't know. No, you don't. 
You like the idea that they might not be a bad person, but as soon as you get to know them, you're afraid that you might find out they're not what you thought they were, and so you preemptively like them without ever having to get to know them so that you don't have to find out you don't like them. We treat people like Schrodinger's cat. I both like them and I don't like them at the same time, but the minute I introduce myself to them, I've got to find out if I like them or I don't like them. I'll make it easy for you. People are terrible. We don't like them. <laughs> you want to know why? Because every single person in here no matter how much you like me and how much I like you, has some type of brokenness in them that not only hurts the self, but hurts everybody else around them. It is natural that when you have pain, it also causes pain to people around you. And it only causes pain to the people closest to you. That's why the people who know you the least like you the best. Because you can't hurt them. They're far enough away that your mess does not mess them up. They're far enough away from you that even though you are a hot mess in whatever you are and however you are, at least they're not close enough to you that they get dragged down in the mud with you. The people that like you the best know you the least. The people that love you the most are the ones that are willing to be pained by your pain. You want to know why it's lifted together? Because God insists on using people to heal other people. Everybody likes to quote this verse. Give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, good measure, running over. I'm sure I got some of those backwards. I know pressed down and running over the first and the last one. I don't know the middle two. They always get messed up in my brain. Some type of spiritual dyslexia. But give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, good measure, Running over. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that a great tithing sermon? Give and it shall be given unto you. If I just give a dollar, then something's going to come back to me that is pressed down, shaken together, good measure. Let me, let me give you the example of what this looks like. Has anybody ever had to rake leaves? First of all, I don't do that, okay? I will do a lot of things for you. I will help you replace cabinets. I'll help you install appliances. I will help you rip up and replace the floors. Do not call me to do anything with your yard. I have a yard that is five square feet total, and my wife has to fight me to the death to mow that thing. It takes me less than 32 seconds to get that thing mowed, and I fight her tooth and nail to not have to do it. I cannot wait till Judah is old enough so I can turn him into my slave and send him out there. Christina will come to me. I need you to mow the lawn, Julian. I'll do it, honey. Judah, get the lawn done before I get in trouble. I give. So raking leaves. You ever had to rake leaves? It's the worst. Because there's the wind that takes the leaves away. For some reason they get stuck in the rake. But when you get to the end, the good part, where you get to throw them in the trash bag, what you do is you get really lazy and cheap at that point. I don't want to have to go and get another trash bag because that's extra steps I have to take. Not only that, I don't want to spend money on more trash bags if I run out because then I'm going to have to drive to the store, get more trash bags. How far can I make this one trash bag work? And so what you do is you fill the bag with all the leaves. And then after you've done that, you start shaking it so that you can get all the air in between the leaves out of there. And then you fill it more. But you're not done after you've shaken it a couple times. You've got to make sure you get everything in there. And leaves are really, really squishable. So you take your foot and you step in that bag and you press it down. You see where I'm going with it? You start 
filling that thing. And then when you've got it pressed down, you think to yourself, I can get more in there. So you go get more leaves and you put it in there. You start putting in a good measure in there. And you keep shaking it and pressing it down until you're standing on top of the leaves because you compress them so much that there's no more pressing or shaking to be done, that the bag is flowing over. Isn't that a good tithing analogy? Given it shall be given unto you. God will go ahead and fill up your bag. Here's the part that everybody leaves out about that verse. Shall men pour into your bosom? God says, if you give. Now let's not just talk about tithing. Let's talk about time. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about mercy. Let's talk about forgiveness. If you give then there's going to be given back to you in such a way that it will seem as though you have shaken all the air out. You have pressed so much in there and there's more to be given to you that you can't even contain it all and it will be running over. But the only way I'm going to make sure it gets to you is by using other people. Man, we wish God would leave people out of it and just do it himself because he doesn't mess things up. Because even when he inflicts pain on us, it's not because he's trying to be mean. It's not because he's trying to be cruel, but because it's the only way he can get to the trauma in our life. Like when a surgeon cuts you open so that he can operate on the organ that he's got to get to. It's not that he's just or she's just stabbing you out of spite and anger. It's because the only way to get to the part that needs healing is to inflict that initial pain so that a fullness of healing can come. So we understand when God inflicts pain, even though we might get angry and mad, we know that his desires for us, his love for us is perfect and so we'll endure it but man when he sends someone else in my life and he looks at me and says this is the scalpel I'm going to use hard pass God I'll just live with the cancer Here, here's the person that I'm going to use as the brace in your life so that you have time to heal so that eventually you stop looking hard pass God that person annoys me more than anybody else in the church. I might like these people, but of the people that I like in here, of these people, that's the person that I like the least. In fact, there's other not these people that I don't know that I think I probably like better than the person I like least in this building. That's not who I want to be part of the healing process, God. Wouldn't that be interesting if we went to the doctor? You need surgery on your heart. Can we do a bake sale instead? <laughs> we can do a bake sale, but that doesn't change that you need the surgery on your, your heart. What if instead, what if instead I just go to a psychiatrist? Okay, maybe you need some help with mental health. Maybe you do have some things there that you need to work through and talk through. And maybe there is a chemical imbalance. But that doesn't change that what is the problem is the heart. Hear me out. What if I go for a jog? That will benefit you, and it'll help the heart, but we've already seen why you're here. It's because you didn't jog in the first place. You can't jog now and fix the problem we've got. We've got to fix the real problem, and then you can go for a jog and maintain it. But I don't want... God, I don't want that to be the person you send into my life to help heal this. God, I don't want that to be the. I'm smarter than that person. Yes, you are, but guess what? Just because you're smarter than them does not mean that you can operate on yourself. The best doctors in the world do not cut their own chest open to perform open heart surgery. I do not care how spiritual you are. 
I don't care how much you tithe. I don't care how much you pray or read the Bible. I don't care if you can quote the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-20. When it comes time for you to be healed, you're not the one that can do it. Then I'll let God do it. Great. God's going to use a person as his tool so that he can do it. Well, I don't like that part. You wonder why he calls us sheep. Remember what I said at the beginning? And Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. You understand he's talking about you? Before Luke ever lists the Pharisees, sinners, the Pharisees just tried to cut themselves off. Well, not us. And then Jesus starts telling the parable. One for the 99. I'm going to go after the one for the 99. I'm going to go after the one for the nine. Guess what? You're going to be the one sometime. But preacher, I'm on my way to heaven. I didn't ask if you're on your way to heaven. I didn't ask if you're blood-bought and redeemed. I didn't ask if you're sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. What I said is there's going to be times where you get so full of yourself and so rebellious against God or even so lazy because it is exhausting to walk sometimes. And that's not a shot at laziness. That's not a shot to shame you. It's just life is hard, and it gets exhausting to keep walking sometimes. And when it gets exhausting, we forget that Jesus says, well, I can go rest in his arms. And sometimes when we forget that we can rest in his arms, when we're so exhausted, we just say, I'm just going to sit here in my mess instead. You're going to be the one at some point. And at some point, you're going to need someone to be the person that God sends into your life, that reaches down, grabs your legs, and rips you out. And you know what's going to happen in heaven? God's going to throw a party. I thought he only did that when people got saved. He does that every time someone repents. For one sinner who repents, it doesn't say for one person who gets redeemed, for one sinner who repents, it's the same party. Because every time it happens, the angels in heaven are reminded of the moment when they saw their creator. Keep something in mind. Angels are designed as weapons of war, as tools of battle, as instruments of destruction. And every time an angel sees someone repent, they're reminded of that moment in history where they all had to stand and watch as their creator died and they were not allowed to be what they were created to be. You want to know why they celebrate so hard? Because they see that the sacrifice was worth it. They see that the loss of the reason for their creation was worth it. Now we're done talking about you. Let's talk about them. If God's going to send people into your life when you're broken to be part of the healing that he intends to administer to you, guess where he's going to send you? You want to know why God uses sheep as his example of us and the rest of the world? Because sheep are stupid, stubborn, silly, adorable animals. The adorable part's important. It's easier to love something when it's cute. It's just science, all right? That's why mothers dress their children up in nice clothes because when that child starts screaming like a demon, the mom says, but at least you're cute. You want to know what a sheep does when it's really in trouble? 
when things are, when it's really injured itself and it's caught in a place that it can't get out of. The first thing it's going to do is start making a lot of noise. The second thing it's going to do is because it doesn't know how to get itself out, it's going to start flailing every single limb that it has, trying to wiggle itself free. And most of the time when it does that, it just gets itself more stuck. In addition, while it's doing that, it's going to start snapping its teeth at anything that gets close to it because it's stuck and it can't get out. It's in pain and the pain's getting worse because they keep on flailing and driving themselves deeper into the pain even though they don't realize that's what they're doing. And so anything that gets close enough to that sheep, whether it wants to be close or not, if they get just too close, that sheep is going to bite that person or it's going to kick that person and it's going to inflict pain on whoever is stupid enough to get close to the in-trauma sheep. You understand that when God sends us out to find that sheep, he's saying, I need you to go out and you're going to get bit. You're going to bleed a little when you go and try and help that sheep. And we get so mad when we try and go to help people that God has sent us to be a portion of the healing in their life. Like, I can't believe they did that to me. Why would they hurt me? Don't they know I'm trying to help them? No, they don't. That's the thing. Because they're so broken in the place that they're at right now. And even the most spiritual people, when the trauma suddenly starts flaring up, when the pain starts getting too real, I don't care how good a person they are or how spiritual a person that they are, when it starts hurting bad, they're going to start flailing and biting and snapping at whatever gets close enough to them. And so when you go to help someone, even if they're your closest friend, even if they're the most spiritual person you know, get ready, they're going to hurt you. Don't they know I'm trying to help them? Don't they understand I love them? No, because the pain is too great and our response what ends up happening is well they hurt me so I'm just going to walk away from it you want to know what we do we sentence them to be stuck until God sends someone else I don't know how God does things wish I did I have an idea but I really don't know how he does things I know that he says he does things in seasons sometimes God only sends one person to help in a season you or I get so mad over the injury they inflict on us when we're trying to help them and we wash our hands from them. Who's to say it won't be another season until God sends someone else? And please understand something. It is not a call to be the Savior. very fine line. You are not called to go and save people. You are called to go. I am called to go to be an extension of the Savior. A tool can only do what it was made for. When God sends you to somebody and you have done to the extent of what God has asked, once that's done, Walk away. Well, preacher, I thought I have to be prepared to feel pain because I'm trying to help them. I thought I have to be prepared to bleed a little because God is sending them. Correct. But you are not called to be the fullness of their healing. You are called to be an extension of their healing in one place. You want to know why most of the times we as Christians stop helping people? One of two reasons. In that sheep's flailing and biting and snapping, 
we get a little bit of pain and we forget what other people were willing to endure for us. And so we say, I'm done. I'm not dealing with this. That's one reason. The other reason we stop helping people is because we overstep where God has asked us to go. God says, I want you to go into their life and I want you to help them in their marriage. Sometimes we go into minister to a scenario where God has sent us. I want you to minister to the marriage. And then we start seeing the kids. And so we try and minister to the kids. And God says, I didn't ask you to minister to the kids. That's someone else. But God, I see the whole, it's the whole family. I didn't ask you to minister to the family. I asked you to minister to the man. But God, the kid, let someone else worry about the kids. And what ends up happening is we overextend ourselves into an area and we feel pain in places God was not willing for us to feel that pain. And the pain becomes so overwhelming, not that we get embittered and walk away, but that we cripple ourselves. Let's go back to money real fast. You want to know why you shouldn't give money to every single person who legitimately needs money and asks you for money? Pass the tithe. Do you want to know why it's foolish, why it's stupid? Why it is rebellious to give your money to anybody who legitimately needs it anytime they ask you because you don't have infinite money. And there is someone that God's going to send into your life that needs that money. If you let the compassion, legitimate compassion and sorrow for that person, Take over to the point that you just start shelling out all of your money to everybody. They legitimately, this is not about someone trying to cheat you or steal from you. They legitimately, if you start shelling it out, when the person that God was going to send into your life that actually needed that from you, you won't have it. That's why giving and just giving and giving and giving is not biblical. Biblical giving is, God, here's the tithe. Now what do you want me to do with the rest? Let's go ahead and talk about your time. You want to know why it's unwise to agree to help every single person who comes to you and needs help? Because you've only got so much energy. And when you exhaust yourself by giving yourself to every single person who needs your help, and they legitimately do, and you might love them, and they might, lo and they might love you, and they might not even be trying to take advantage of you. It might be a legitimate request, and they are grateful. But if you expend your energy every single time someone comes to you, then when God brings someone into your life where there's something that he planned to use you because you're the only person in this season that he intends to use from that, you have so drained yourself that nothing is left. Our job is to go out there and be an extension of healing in people's lives only to the extent that God requests. You are not the Savior. I am not the Savior. And you're going to mess it up sometimes. And if you do mess it up, so what? I'm not talking about you messed it up. I'm not talking about in your sincerity you missed it and you made a mistake. I'm talking about when you consciously see it and you decide, God, I know you said this, but I'm going to go further because I can do more. No, you cannot. You can only do what you were created to do. And even then, you can only do it when God decides to use you that way. A hammer can't swing itself. A scalpel can't cut by itself. Someone's got to grab the handle and direct it. You don't attend this church so that you can sit here 
be encouraged and eventually enter into eternity. Now, don't misunderstand. There are going to be days where the only thing you should be doing in here is being encouraged. There will be days where the only scripture that you need is where Jesus comes alongside and says, take my yoke, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Nothing wrong with that. There's going to be days where it's you that needs to be ministered to, and you're the one that's the sheep stuck, and you're broken by life, and someone needs to come alongside you and be the administrator of your healing. But the focus of this church is not to ease your pain in this world until you enter into eternity. The focus of this church is to either heal you or equip you so that when you leave the rest of the week, you're able to either heal people in your life or equip them in your life. I don't preach to you so that you have something. I preach to you so that something can become a part of you, can grow and mature And then even if I'm not around, the word of God still persists in you and you're able to live it out. The best job that I can do as a pastor is make it so that one day you don't need me anymore. But the best thing I can do as a pastor is be so good that eventually you start going to the manual and start teaching yourself. And when something gets a little bit beyond you, then you come to me and I help you through it. Or when you're broken, then you come to me or whoever else God sends into your life and we help heal you. The best I can do is teach you to train yourself under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And keep something in mind. Doctors are wrong sometimes. Unless you're in absolute crisis, it's usually very foolish to just look at a doctor and say, yes, whatever you say. It's wise to hear the person that knows medicine better than you and listen to everything they say, but then also to double check and say, is this what's best for my body? You want to know why? Because sometimes doctors are wrong. Guess what? Sometimes your pastor's going to be wrong. Not often. I get it right about 99% of the time, just saying. I'm pretty good. No. I probably get it right 20% of the time, and even that's generous. When they get to heaven, God's like, you had it right 2% of the time. You dummy. You're lucky you loved me and I loved you. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to give you the wrong advice sometimes. It won't be unbiblical advice. Advice. It will just be the wrong timing of that advice in your life. If you don't take the time to go back and double check what the perfect word says about what I preach, about what I teach, about what I advise, you're going to do more harm than good because keep something in mind I might be the shepherd of this flock but at the end of the day I'm just a sheep too I may be the one instructing how we use the tools but keep something in mind at the end of the day I'm just a tool as well I might be teaching you how to exercise as a part of the body but don't ever forget I'm also part of the body you want to know why I like that video so much that I talked about at the beginning Because I laughed so hard when I saw it. And all I could imagine was God laughing himself to tears. Because it was so funny that he just pulled me out of something. I went right back in. And as he's laughing so much that his side hurts, he's just pulling me out again. 
There's nothing shameful about your humanity. If there was, then God would have just said, I'm done with you. Rather, he says, I love you so much that I can laugh when you've messed it up again. And as I pick you up again, if you just need Jesus to pull you out again, whether it's because you've been so traumatized by life or because you have been so stubborn in yourself, it doesn't matter if it's your fault or if it's the world's fault that did it to you. If you are in a place where you just need the Father to be willing to come down again and get cut and scraped and bruised so that he can wrap his arms around you, I would invite you to come now. There's nothing shameful about it. There's nothing embarrassing about it. It is just a loving father who wants to let his children know that in their brokenness and their rebellion, he still loves them more than anything else this universe has to offer.